Well, howdy y'all. Welcome back to my back porch. Well, it's actually not my back porch. I do this in my kitchen. But anyway, welcome back to episode number 35 of Once Upon a Time in Texas. I am your host and producer and head researcher and uh, all that jazz, Michael Mitchell. So every now and then you run across some interesting history and you say, man, I just didn't know that. And that's exactly what happened uh, this time. You know, I've told you guys with the podcast that things just kind of hit me and I kind of go, you know, that's cool. And I think I'm going to share it with the masses. Um, y- y'all being the masses, just so you know. And so anyway, uh, that's that's what happened this time. Um, so this one I'm calling a villain and a hero. It's actually a few heroes because we're going to touch briefly on a few of them. But anyway, our villain in this podcast came to me just randomly. I, I turned on the TV and it was on the History Channel, which is pretty often, you know, here in my house. Um, but the History Channel was talking about this guy and I, I had never heard his name before, but I just happened to sit down for a minute or two and uh, I was like, well, this is kind of a little interesting. He seems like a interesting character but it's how he died that really caught my attention which we'll get to here in a little bit a little later in the podcast and and why i found that so interesting so on the other side with our hero uh, my buddy michael kurtz um yes michael kurtz if you're out there man howdy howdy thank you thank you he sent me some more interesting history on another guy that i thought you know this is stuff people should know. So, Michael, shout out to you, homie. And uh, thank you for the info and keep sending it because you always find some interesting stuff that I just love to share. So, here we go. So, did y'all know that there are only eight civilian Congressional Medal of Honor recipients? Yeah. That's, I, I thought there were others, but no, there's just eight. So it's true. We're going to talk about them a little bit. So before we jump into, you know, Texas villains and heroes, though, of course, as always, I want to thank my sponsors, which is me and American Mortgage Company. I know there are tons of people moving to and in Texas, and I know a lot of you do, too. And so as a sidebar, hopefully by the end of this week, um, I'll be in Oklahoma as well, being able to do mortgages up there. So I've already done my license stuff. I'm just waiting for the license to hit the uh, the the national registration thing so that my broker can go pick it up. And then boom, we'll be doing Oklahoma too. So anyway, you know, as we've educated before as a mortgage loan originator, I do mortgages. We're kind of like a bank, except we don't have all the high overhead fees. So working with brokers is better. And if you're not in Texas or Oklahoma, you can always go to findamortgagebroker.com and check out the good folks there. So anyway, as I've said before, brokers, uh, mortgage loan originators like me are faster, cheaper, and easier. I'm so excited. We're going to be closing on a a friend of mine's house very soon. Uh, It just worked out just to be a super sweet deal. They ended up selling their old house to their son, 
who's fixing to get married and he's just thrilled. And these folks are getting a new house, which they've wanted for a long time. Anyway, it's just so happy that, that we're making this happen. And so, uh, yeah, faster, cheaper, and easier. And, uh, you know, if you know people moving to or in Texas or Oklahoma for that fact, send them my way, themichaelmitchell.com. Let me help them out. Remember, when you work with me, I sell dreams, not mortgages. <laughs> I've said that a few times and people go, oh, that sounds so nice. <laughs> well, I got to make it nice, you know, because who wants a mortgage? I mean, seriously, folks, I'm out here selling something that nobody wants. Everybody wants the house. Nobody wants the mortgage. <laughs> anyway, I do try to make the process uh, entertaining and as pain-free as possible. So, yeah, if you know somebody, send them my way, themichaelmitchell.com. But I also have stuff on that website about other things I do, uh, just stuff about me. There's ways to contact me and stuff like that. So... There you go, themichaelmitchell.com, T-H-E, michaelmitchell.com. If you know somebody looking for a mortgage in Texas or Oklahoma, send them my way. All right, so let's kind of jump into the podcast today. It, I don't think it's going to be a little longer, but there is a lot of information. So our villain, or you know, our bad guy today, is a cat named James Brown Miller. He was also known as Killin' Jim, Killer Miller, which is kind of you know, catchy because it rhymes and also Deacon Jim. So he was an American outlaw and title holder of gunfighter for the American old West. It said that he killed 12 people during his gunfights. Um, Miller was referred by some people by his alias as Deacon Jim, because, and here's the weird thing. He regularly attend, regularly attended the Methodist church, and he did not smoke or drink, which was kind of odd back in the old West. So let's dig into this guy a little bit. So Miller or killing Jim <clears throat> or, uh, you know, killer Miller, um, was born in Van Buren, Arkansas, but his part, his parents migrated to Franklin, Texas when he was just a year old. And that's kind of where he grew up. His father, uh, Jacob Miller, was born in Pennsylvania in 1801, and he was a stonemason. And his father, the stonemason, helped build the first Capitol building in Austin, Texas. So that's pretty cool. Miller's mother was um, born Cynthia Basham. So just a few years after the move down to Texas, Miller's father dies. So his mother took the family to Avant, Texas to live with her parents. So in 1869, when young Killin' Jim or James Brown Miller was eight, his grandparents were found murdered in their home. So Miller, the eight-year-old boy, was arrested, apparently, but never prosecuted for the crime. Hmm. Did he do it at eight years old? Who knows? His sister, Georgia, and her husband, John Thomas Coop, accepted the boy onto their farm at Plum Creek near Gatesville. 
1880 census records him as being 19 years old at that time, living in Coriel County, Texas, with his siblings and widowed mother. Mother, not mother, mother. On July 30th, 1884, Miller shot and killed his brother-in-law, with whom he'd had an argument. He shot him with a shotgun while the latter was sleeping on his porch. Could you imagine that? You're sleeping on your porch. You've taken in your brother-in-law. You have a little argument and the guy shoots you. What a jerk, right? So again, Miller is arrested for the murder, convicted, and sentenced to life in prison. The conviction, however, is overturned on a technicality. So anyway, Miller decides to leave the coop farm, Obviously, I'm pretty sure his sister was still a little pissed about, you know, killing her husband. You know, so probably a good idea that he leaves. And he goes to become a hired hand on the McCulloch County Ranch of Emanuel Manon Clements, cousin of the outlaw John Wesley Harden. So Clements is killed by the Ballinger City Marshal Joe Townsend on March 29, 1887, during the period when Miller was working at the ranch. So Townsend, the marshal, was later ambushed by an assailant wielding a shotgun, which became known as Miller's signature style, and was severely wounded in one arm. Townsend, the city marshal, survived, which is a good thing, but he did lose his arm to amputation. It's a bad thing in the Old West. So over the next couple of years, our villain, James Brown Miller, travels the Texas-Mexico border region. He operated a saloon in San Saba County. Um, In Reeves County, he became a deputy sheriff. Because why not? Seems like a bad dude, but they may not have known, I guess. So he becomes a deputy sheriff and later becomes the town marshal of Pecos, Texas which is the uh, hometown of one of my best friends, Jeff Bryant, who was in the country band Ricochet. So Jeff and Junior Bryant. Anyway, so during this time, James Brown Miller gains a reputation for killing Mexicans, claiming that they had all been attempting to escape. That's probably not a good thing. So Miller is married to a daughter of a cousin of John Wesley Harden. So who, you know, you guys know is another Old West outlaw. In 1891, Miller marries Sally Clements, the daughter of Manning Clements, who was killed earlier. Assuming the appearance of a devout Methodist, he earns the nickname Deacon Jim. He was well-liked by the townspeople because he was polite and an avid member of the church, regardless of the weather, he was known to wear a long black frock coat, which is important. That comes in later. So then Miller becomes involved in a feud with the Pecos Sheriff, George A. Bud Frazier. While Frazier was on a trip to El Paso, he was informed that Miller had allowed criminals to gain greater control over Pecos. So, Frazier enlisted the help of Texas Ranger John R. Hughes to secure Pecos. 
after returning to Pecos, or some people call it Pecos, but everybody here calls it Pecos. So after returning to Pecos, Frazier immediately jails Miller on the charge of murder. But a jury acquits him of this charge. Frazier also believed that Miller had stolen mules and had arrested him for theft. So on April 12th, 1894 in Pecos, Miller is confronted by Frazier about his involvement in the murder of a cattleman, Con Gibson. Frazier did not wait for Miller to go for his shotgun and shot and wounded him in the right arm. While Miller was attempting to fire, he discharged his gun with his left hand, hitting a bystander, Joe Kranz. Frazier fires again, hitting Miller in the groin, which finally puts him down. So Frazier emptied his six-shooter into Miller's chest. After Miller's friends rushed him to the doctor, his frock coat was removed to reveal a large steel plate that Miller wore under it as a kind of bulletproof vest. And it saves his life, and Miller recovers. That's pretty lucky. There was a Clint Eastwood movie where he did that. He gets shot in the chest, and then he stands up, and it's the... He drops out, a, I guess, one of the doors to an old cast iron stove. Anyway, so that's pretty smart. So Miller should have died then, but anyway, he lives. So on December 26, 1894, Miller was standing outside a blacksmith shop when his good buddy Frazier began to shoot at him again. This, this guy, Frazier, is, I guess, you know, he just knew that Miller was a bad dude or was going to be a bad dude. Anyway, Frazier hits Miller in the arm and the leg again, and then rushing in to finish him off, Frazier tries to shoot Miller in the chest. But again, the metal plate in Frazier's coat saves him yet again. So th this sounds like a pretty good technique so far. So Frazier is demoralized. He quickly retreats. And then Miller has Frazier charged with attempted murder. And, you know, the case is heard in El Paso and it ends up in a hung jury. So Frazier loses his bid for re-election as sheriff and leaves town for uh, Edie, New Mexico, which is now Carlsbad. A few, months, a few months later, he returns to Pecos to visit his mother and sister. Miller hears that Frazier is in the area. And on September 13th, 1896... Frazier was at a gaming table in Toya, Texas. Miller opened the saloon, swinging doors, levels his shotgun, and then shoots Frazier, who was dealing, and pretty much, from all accounts, removes most of his head. So Frazier's sister later confronts Miller, who threatened to kill her as well. But a jury acquits Miller again. Yeah, so Miller mutter, mutters uh, threats towards Joe Earp, a witness who testified against him. Three weeks after Miller's trial, Earp is killed by a shotgun blast. Hmm. But to secure an alibi, Miller spent the night riding his horse on a grueling hundred-mile journey, and the prosecuting district attorney, Judge Stanley, later, interesting, dies of food poisoning in Memphis, Texas. Hmm. So this guy, you know, James Brown Miller has all these kind of weird things, but yeah. 
He's got an alibi. He's acquitted. You know, all this kind of stuff. So despite his legal issues, Miller joins the Texas Rangers. Just love this. Are you a killer? Yeah. Cool. Join the Rangers. And he worked as a resident ranger in Memphis, Texas. So later he served in Hall County. And at that time, he killed a man in the neighboring county of Collingsworth in the course of his work. So he's killed a few people by then. So then Miller moves his family to Fort Worth in 1900, where his wife Sally opened a boarding house aided by her older children. Here, Miller began to advertise as a professional killer, charging $150 for each murder. Sounds like a good line of work. Miller killed two men near Midland that year and was arrested for the murder of one of them. But Miller's partner on the trip, Lawrence Angel, was convinced to take credit for the killing. And acting as a witness, Miller claimed that Angel acted in (laughs) self-defense. And they get off again. So, all right. So here we go. So during the summer of 1902, Miller claimed that he caught three men stealing cattle in Ward County. He killed two of them using his Winchester and wounded the third, who escaped by managing to cling to to his horse and ride away. So Miller killed a lawyer, James Jarrett, on August 28, 1902. Jarrett had defended area farmers near Lubbock who were raising fences against cattle Ranchers took them to court, believing that the fences fences disrupted the grazing of their cattle. Those ranchers hire Miller to murder Jarrett, the lawyer, paying him $500. Miller caught Jarrett while watering his horses near his farm. Miller had to shoot Jarrett four times, which later Miller says he was the hardest damn man to kill I ever tackled. So, not only does he admit to it, but he goes, you know, he was a pretty damn hard guy to kill. (laughs) So, let's jump to 1904. Miller took a contract for the murder of Frank Four, F-O-R-E. On March 10th, Miller followed his target to the Westbrook Hotel. Even as Four was accompanied by three other lawmen, uh, D. Harkey, Jinx Clark, and Tom Coggins, Miller left the trio in the lobby and shot four in the restroom upstairs. Immediately afterwards, Miller attempted to surrender to Harkey, but Harkey refuses to participate. Clark and Collins later claimed that they witnessed the shooting and that Miller acted in self-defense. And then four dies the next day. So, huh, I wonder what he had on the other two guys, Clark and Coggins. So anyway, murders another guy gets away with it. On August 1st, 1906, Miller kills Ben C. Collins, a lawman for the Bureau of Indian Affairs in what was still Indian Territory or Oklahoma, which he carried out in front of Collins' home and his wife. It was retribution ordered by a man named Port Pruitt, whom Collins had shot and crippled in 1903 when Pruitt resisted arrest. Pruitt had already hired another gunman for $500, but the gunman took $200 in advance, told Collins of the threat, and then leaves the territory. Miller shoots Collins with a load of buckshot, 
Collins returned six shots, but was hit in the face by Miller with the shotgun blast, another shotgun blast, and dies. So Miller was arrested for murder, but not convicted, and then eventually released. (laughs) So this guy is literally getting away with murder. So now, on February 28th, 1908, Pat Garrett, so the ex-lawman and supposed killer of Billy the Kid, is killed near Las Cruces, New Mexico. Ostensibly because of a land dispute, but Miller was alleged to have committed the murder and, you know, is alleged to have been paid to do so. But historians do say that this is really unlikely as a guy named Jesse Wayne Brazel confessed to the crime and Brazel was tried and acquitted on the grounds of self-defense. So who knows? All right, so here we go. 1908. So fast forward a little bit more. Miller is contracted by local ranchers Jesse West and Joe Allen through middleman Barry Burrell for the murder of a guy named Alan Augustus Gus Bobbitt of Ada, Oklahoma. He was a cattle rancher and former U.S. Deputy Marshal. Or, sorry, Deputy U.S. Marshal. The murder was alleged to have been ordered either to acquire his land or because of a personal grudge. Who knows? It's early 1900s. still the Old West. The fee was $1,700, which is an enormous sum of money back in 1908-1909. So on February 27th, 1909, Miller chose a place of ambush, concealing himself near Bobbitt's ranch house. Bobbitt and his hired man, Bob Ferguson, arrive from town in their supply wagons. Miller shoots Bobbitt in the side with both barrels from a shotgun. Bobbitt tumbles out of the lead wagon, and Miller left the scene on his way to Fort Worth, passing by Ferguson. Bobbitt's wife dashed out to check on her injured husband. Before dying, Bobbitt confirmed that he had been attacked by Miller. The murder was witnessed by Oscar Peeler, a 19-year-old cowhand who had accepted $50 to lead Miller to Bobbitt. Miller was arrested in Texas by the Texas Rangers and extradited to Oklahoma to stand trial along West, Allen, and Burl, the guys that hired him. So this is where my family history comes in a little bit. Other than living in Ada in later years, you know, my family, I don't recall exactly what the connection was to this next event, other than maybe a family member found one of the guys involved or something like that. But anyway... Ada residents knew that the evidence against the four suspects was not really considered strong, leaving open the chance for acquittal. And they'd already heard about Miller killing, you know, killing Miller or killer Miller, killing Jim, Deacon Jim. They already knew that he'd gotten off quite a bit. And then weeks earlier, another man named Stevenson, who was a suspect in a 1907 murder of town marshal Rudolph Cathy in Paul's Valley, Oklahoma, not too far away, had been acquitted on murder charges. So some of the folks in Ada decide to take things into their own hands. So a lynch mob reported by the Daily Ardmorite of Ardmore, Oklahoma, it was reported numbering 200 people 
in this lynch mob. And it was reported by the Associated Press to be estimated from 30 to 40 people in number break into the jail between 2 and 3 o'clock in the morning of April 19, 1909. They dragged um, they dragged the four suspects outside to an abandoned livery stable behind the jail. Miller remained stoic while the other three reportedly begged for their lives. Miller makes two final requests that his diamond ring be given to his wife, I guess back in Fort Worth, and that he is permitted to wear his black hat while being hanged. Both requests are granted, because why not? He also asked that he die in his black frock coat. This request was denied. Doesn't say why, just that it was denied. So Miller is reported to have shouted, Let her rip! and then stepped voluntarily off his box to hang. The bodies of all four men are left hanging for several hours until a photographer could be brought in to record the moment. And these photos were sold by tourists and Ada for many years. And there's even a book called Four Men Hanging. I, I believe that's the name of the book, Four Men Hanging, that kind of documents the whole ordeal. So yeah, there you go. So now let's get into some heroes. So I'm going to focus on one Congressional Medal of Honor recipient. And I'll tell you the connection, you know, here in a little bit. But let's start with the other seven first and just see what kind of company this guy falls in with. And so I'm just going to hit real briefly on the seven civilian Congressional Medal of Honor recipients. And then we'll get to kind of our hero of the day. So first is probably one of the most famous, Buffalo Bill Cody. We've all heard of Buffalo Bill and his Wild West show, but he did receive his Medal of Honor in 1872 for gallantry above and beyond the call of duty as an army scout during the Indian Wars. So apparently the first few, there, there's a lot against Indians because, you know, Indians were the problem back then, apparently. So another one is Amos Chapman. He receives his... Medal of Honor, Congressional Medal of Honor in 1874 for gallantry while serving as an Indian scout with the 6th U.S. Cavalry and participated in the battle at Washita River, Texas. I didn't look it up much, but I've heard of it. Um, the next guy, William Billy Dixon, was an American scout and bison hunter that was active in the Texas Panhandle and was at the second battle of Adobe Walls in what they call the Buffalo Wallow Fight, where he used his buffalo gun, or possibly a borrowed buffalo gun, to stave off a uh, Native American group of seven to 1,200 people. Um, per Wikipedia, he shot and killed one Indian at a distance of 1,500 yards earning him a position on the list of longest recorded sniper kills. So that's interesting. Next, we move on to a little different one. John H. Farrell earned his Medal of Honor in 1865 for extraordinary heroism in action on board the U.S. Monitor Neosho during the engagement with enemy batteries at Bells Mills Cumberland River near Nashville, Tennessee, um, during the American Civil War. Uh, 
So carrying out his duties courageously, this is how it's written up, carrying out his duties courageously during the engagement, civilian pilot John Farrell gallantly left the pilot house after the flag and signal staffs of the vessel had been shot away and taking the flag which was drooping over the wheelhouse, make it fast to the stump of the highest mast remaining, although the ship was still under heavy fire. So yeah, he runs out, puts the flag up, apparently to say who they were. The next guy was also in the Navy. Uh, Martin Freeman received, well, I'm sorry, not in the Navy. I guess he was serving the Navy. Martin Freeman received his in 1864 for extraordinary heroism in action as pilot of the flagship USS Hartford during action against Fort Morgan. Rebel gunboats, um, and the Ram Tennessee in Mobile Bay, Alabama, um, August 5th, 1864. With his ship under terrific enemy shellfire, civilian pilot Martin Freeman calmly remained at his station in the main top and skillfully piloted the ships into the bay. He rendered gallant service, that word gallant or gallantry, the, he rendered gallant service throughout the prolonged battle in which the rebel gunboats were captured or driven off. The prize ram Tennessee forced to surrender and the fort successfully attacked. All right, so next is William Woodall. He served as the chief civilian scout for Major General Philip Sheridan's Cavalry Corps and rode with what they call the Jesse Scouts an irregular group of spies which infiltrated Southern territory by dressing in Confederate uniforms. During the Battle of Namazine Church, Virginia, on April 3rd, 1865, he was among a group of Jesse scouts that captured Confederate Brigadier General Rufus Berenger. Woodall himself seized the general's headquarters flag for which he was formally presented with the Medal of Honor a month later, May 3rd, 1865. So number seven on our list, and our only woman, Mary Edwards Walker. She attempted to join the Union Army at the outbreak of the American Civil War, but was denied. Um, she had gone to medical school, so she served as a surgeon at a temporary hospital in Washington, D.C., before being hired by Union forces and assigned to the Army of the Cumberland and later the 52nd Ohio Infantry becoming the first female surgeon in the U.S. Army. She was captured by Confederate forces after crossing enemy lines to treat wounded civilians and arrested as a spy. She was sent as a prisoner of war to Richmond, Virginia, until released in a prisoner exchange. For all of this and her actions that day, she was awarded the Medal of Honor, but it is specifically noted that it was not expressly given for gallantry and action, apparently because she was not under fire while she was treating civilians. So the interesting thing about all these Medal of Honor winners is that they were all stripped of their honors back in the early 1900s because um, apparently they really shouldn't be given to civilians. But then all of them were, I guess, reawarded or reinstated between 1977 and 1989. But let's, 
let's get to the reason this whole podcast gets started. And this, it's a guy named James Bell Dozier. So what connection does he have? Well, he was from Texas to name one, but the other reason hits a little closer to home, and I'll share that here in just a few. Let's learn a little bit about James Dozier. So our buddy James Dozier was born May 2nd, 1820 in Warren County, Tennessee. The family moved several times, you know, as westward expansion started opening up new areas. And uh, while the family lived near Crabapple Lake in Illinois, Dozier and his brothers learned from a Delaware Indian friend to hunt, fish, and track game. Crabapple Lake. Isn't that where Hawkeye was from on MASH? Crabapple Lake or Crabapple Clove? Something like that. Anyway, sorry. That just... Sorry. Little, little side note there. Anyway, back to Dozier. 1847, Dozier travels to Texas to volunteer for the Mexican War. He arrives in San Antonio and enlisted in the Texas Rangers on October 22nd, 1847, serving under Captain J.J. Curitan in the area between Corpus Christi and the San Saba River. He's discharged from the Rangers a couple of years later in 1849. Dozier returns to Missouri and married, but because of hostilities between Texans and Native American tribes, he re-enlists in the Rangers in Jack County, Texas, so Jacksboro area, which is just south of me. Well, everything's south of us pretty much in Wichita Falls, except for the Panhandle. But yeah, just south of us. It's like 40 minutes down to Jacksboro. And so he enlists in Jack County, Texas with Captain M.D. Tackett's company. So during the Civil War, Dozier served in the Jack City. It says Jack City. I think the writer meant Jack County. But anyway, it says Jack City Rangers providing settlement protection before the unit was absorbed into the Confederate Army as the 46th Texas Cavalry. After the war, Dozier became a trusted civilian guide at Fort Richardson, which is in present-day Jacksboro, Texas, which we camp there pretty often with the Boy Scouts. And uh, thanks to intimate knowledge of the North Texas Plains gained during his time as a ranger, he apparently serves, you know, with honor while doing this. On October 5th, 1870, so now, what is he, 50 years old when he born in 1820? I think that's what I said. Yeah, 1820. So now, 50 years old, Dozier and another scout tracked a band of the Keechi tribe to Bluff Creek, where soldiers attacked them. From his hillside position, Dozier fired down on the Keechi and wounded Chief Kishkosh. Noticing that U.S. soldiers below were exposed to direct fire from the band of Keechi on a hillside, Dozier mounts his horse and attacks alone. Dozier suffers some serious injuries when his horse was shot out from under him. Um, but somebody credited much of the campaign success to Dozier's courage. So, on November 19, 1870, Dozier receives the Congressional Medal of Honor for his actions at Bluff Creek. So, Dozier continued to work as an Army scout out of Fort Richardson and as a guide and surveyor for the Maddox Surveying Company. He joined the Rangers again in 1874 um, and participated in the second battle of Lost Valley in Jack County, which I need to look that up. 
And then Dozier dies in 1901 and is buried in the Bottoms Family Cemetery in Jack County. So James Dozier was one of only eight civilians awarded the Medal of Honor. His award was revoked in a review um, in 1916 or 17 because of his civilian status, along with the other civilian scouts that served, but they were reinstated in 1989, or restored, I guess. So what's the strong connection to James Bell Dozier? Well, I've told y'all that our female Scouts BSA troop, Troop 2, is chartered by the Thomas Fowler American Legion Post 169 here in Wichita Falls. So this is how we got to know Michael Kurtz, who provided this little piece of history to us. But wait, there's more. Turns out his wife, a fellow veteran and current post commander, Tasha Kurtz, is the great-great or maybe great-great-great or great-great-great-great, I don't know, granddaughter of a guy by the name of, you guessed it, James Bell Dozier. So kind of some cool history, Tasha. So that's that's pretty neat stuff. So I asked Michael uh, Kurtz if he had any cool history himself, and he said, <laughs> this is what he replies, no, I'm from California. <laughs> But he made sure to remind me that he had done the right thing and married a Texas gal and moved here as fast as he could. <laughs> oh, man, Michael, you crack me up. All right, so there you go. Once upon a time in Texas with a villain and a hero with a few extra heroes sprinkled in, I guess. So what do y'all think? What other weird or off-the-wall stuff have you heard about Texas? Help me out here. I need some material. I love sharing this stuff with y'all. Of course, want to thank my sponsors again, me and American Mortgage Company. Keep in mind, if you know someone moving to or in Texas, or possibly Oklahoma at this point, send them my way, themichaelmitchell.com, T-H-E-MichaelMitchell.com. And remember, I sell dreams, not mortgages. I love making people laugh and smile and help get into homes of their own. Before we put this pony back in the stable, though, I want to talk to you real quick, just uh, real fast. Y'all get on my Facebook page, Your Bucket List, Y-O-U-R Bucket List. Um, it's got like a little leather looking map on the picture with a compass. Um, that's just a cool little project I'm starting up. I'm, I'm trying to make sure we've got plenty of people on there to make that happen. As always, go check out the Once Upon a Time in Texas Facebook page and group. There is a page and a group. I cover the cost of the podcast myself. I paid for all this. But you know what? We could use some help too. You know, if you guys feel so inclined to do donations and stuff, we could always use help with our scout troop. Um, my wife runs a robotics team. Um, my wife and I have also started up a, the or helped start the Red River Regional Science and Engineering Fair here in Wichita Falls. So, you know, I mean, if any of those things grab you and you're looking for a place to donate some money, you know, look me up, themichaelmitchell.com. Um, <laughs> I'd, I'd love to take your money. <laughs> now, I just bring that up because you know what? It's my podcast and we are involved in a lot of things and we are trying to help uh, a lot of kids, a lot of, well, really a lot of kids, but a lot of people with the stuff we do. So, uh, you know, um, any help is good help. Um, but your bucket list is actually something completely different. So y'all go check it out. 
Thank you all for tuning in to Once Upon a Time in Texas. As always, remember, the stars at night are big and bright, deep in the heart of Texas. Y'all have a great week.